We'll be reading the entire chapter. This story is packed with ups and downs and some surprising twists. I don't know if you guys uh, ever watch videos on social media, um, but I'm guessing you do. Um, I do at times. Some of them can be funny. Some of them, of course, can be a waste of time. But um, I like the videos that are the wait for it videos. Have you ever seen those where it usually says wait for it and you watch the video and it's a fairly normal situation and all of a sudden something wild happens? I know a popular one that's out there I just looked at this week. It's a cat and she's just kind of in the corner and, uh, and all of a sudden I guess she gets frightened by something and the cat freaks out. It arches its back and then it gets up on its hind legs and walks kind of out of the room like some sort of zombie cat. Um, it's one of those wait for it videos. There's a lot that are out there. Well, this story today is kind of a wait for it sort of story. There are certain twists in the story that, that are a little bit different than maybe what we'd expect. And they're both twists that kind of where things go, go bad a little bit and then things go good and kind of leave us ready for chapter three. Um, it's a wonderful story and it's, I think, a picture of life. Uh, this is a, a picture, of course, of Moses' life and he had a unique life, but I think there are, are things in his life that are like our lives. And it points to this truth that I think we'll see in this, that though the stories of our lives are often unpredictable and imperfect, God is weaving his perfect story through them. Though our lives are often unpredictable and imperfect, God is weaving his story through our lives. That's what I trust we'll see in this. And so we're going to go through this. I'm actually not going to read the whole chapter ahead of time. I'm going to read sections, and then at the end, actually, um, read the whole thing. And I think that may serve you well. Uh, Pastor Jeff and I were talking about that this week. And that way you have the benefit of being taught through the, the whole chapter. And then we can, when we read the whole thing together, I think it'll, it'll make even more sense. Uh, but let's pray, and then we'll dig in uh, at the very beginning of the chapter. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that's here. We thank you for this amazing story. It's just a great story, Lord, that you're a great storyteller, um, but we know that there's more than just a story that's here. There are lessons and there are truths about you and being your people that you want us to understand. So I pray, Lord, you'd speak to us through this story and we'd learn, and Lord, we'd learn more about you and ourselves, and as a result, Lord God, we would walk closely with you and represent you and love others in your name. Lord, I pray for your transforming power through this. Help me to teach and explain and proclaim your word accurately. And Lord, I pray you'd powerfully speak to us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So first I want to talk about verses 1 through 10. And I'm titling this section, this point, A Promising Beginning. So listen, and verses, actually verse 22 of chapter 1 and then into uh, just up through the first three verses. It says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him, uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. So this last 
chapter ended with this decree from Pharaoh to kill all the sons of the Hebrews. Let the daughters live, but to kill the sons. It's an, an edict of death. And he charges all the Egyptians to partake in it, to make sure that the, the sons get cast into the Nile and to carry it out against the Hebrews. And you might think that this story is defined by Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a mighty man, and Egypt is a mighty country. But the storyline here is not centered on Pharaoh's evil, but on God's activity. So we're going to watch as the story unfolds, God at work, not Pharaoh at work. There's a lesson just in that, isn't there? We can define our lives by the evil around us and the challenges, and yet this story calls us to define our lives by God in his activity. And so the story starts with this, this terrible decree, but then now this situation happens. There's something different going on. There's a man from the house of Levite. He marries uh, someone from his own tribe, a woman from the Levite tribe. She bears a son, and they see that he is a fine child, it says. And so they hide him. They're not supposed to hide him. They're supposed to cast him into the Nile. Certainly the Egyptians around them are supposed to cast him into the Nile to, to, to kill him. But they see he's a fine child. They hide him for three months. And when they could hide him no longer, they take for him a basket made of bulrushes, so basically of reeds, and they, they daub it with bitumen and pitch, so tar-like stuff to make it waterproof. They put the child in it, and they place him among the reeds by the river to hide him. Now it says elsewhere in describing what went on, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, you might think that Moses was a really good-looking baby, therefore they did all this stuff. But really, that's not what it means. Um, not to say he wasn't good-looking, we don't know. Um, but his parents are seeing him, and, and I think, first off, it's just natural for parents to love their child, uh, to see in their child beauty. Um, the image of God we see in infants, and, and we see the image of ourselves, of course, in them as well. And so there's a natural side of this that, of course, you don't want to give your child up. And so that alone drives them. But there's more to it. There's, there's a faith in that. They're, they're not just saying, we love our son and want to keep him from harm. There's a stirring inside of them of faith. And we don't know what it's exactly like. Uh, what they're thinking, all that's going on, but we know there's something going on, and they're thinking somehow, perhaps, God will, will make it so that this son can survive, that God will take care of him. Maybe they're even thinking, maybe this one would be the deliverer somehow, and God will, will act in a way to deliver his people and fulfill his promises as he gave to the forefathers. There's faith stirring in them, and so they choose to act, to do something against the king's edict, to hide him for three months, and then when they can no longer hide him, to put him in a basket, a waterproof basket, uh, in the reeds by the river. Not, we don't know what they're thinking there. Maybe they're thinking we can just kind of keep him there, and it's away from everybody. They, they won't hear his cries, and maybe he'll survive, and we can find another place to hide him. Or maybe they're thinking some sort of, uh, maybe intervention will come from God. He'll do something. We don't know. We're, we're at our wit's end. All we can think of is to put him in this basket and hide him in the reeds and, and maybe God will act in some way. We don't know all that went on with them and their thinking, but there, there's faith there and there's love for their child. They see something of God in all this and so they do something. And this, 
Nile River is supposed to be the place of death. The Nile for the Egyptians uh, was the center of their civilization, but also was uh, a god. And in the case for the Hebrews here, it's a god of death. And yet, there's something very different going on. There's, there's a basket, there's an ark of sorts being made, very much like Noah's ark. And this ark is going to save Moses. And in faith, he's placed there. And the river does not swallow him, but the river does something quite different. So we continue in the story in verse 4. It says, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. An amazing turn of events happens here, right? They put the child in in this ark of sorts, trusting God somehow to intervene. And the most unlikely person in the whole kingdom of Egypt just about shows up and rescues Moses. God is weaving a story, even amidst the tragedy and the, the circumstances they're facing, of redemption and rescue. And he does it in a dramatic way. He, and he does it in an ironic way. You would not expect Pharaoh's daughter herself to show up and rescue Moses. There's also drama in here too that we might not pick up that, that the, the heroines here are heroines, they're women. God uses women once again as he did in chapter 1 with the, with the uh, midwives to rescue his people. And so there's Pharaoh's daughter, there's Moses' sister, we know her as Miriam, there's Moses' mother as well prominent in this story as the heroines who act in, in, in amazing ways to bring about this rescue of Moses. It's just an amazing story. So the Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe and she uh, sees the basket, sends her servant over to get it, and there's a baby inside. And all the while, Miriam is there watching, wondering what's going to happen. And she has the gumption actually to approach Pharaoh's daughter. And, and just imagine this now. She knows this is my brother. And somehow she's able to keep a straight face, not give anything away, and say, hey, would you like me to get someone to nurse the baby for you? Um, I have the perfect person in mind. And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, of course. And so she gets Moses' mother to be the wet nurse for the baby. And so God turns everything around and from what would be expected. Moses was supposed to be cast into the Nile. Instead, he's rescued from the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter herself. And his nurse, his uh, wet nurse, is his own mother. And his own mother gets to raise him probably until he's three or so. Three or four, maybe even later. So God takes this storyline, this edict of death from Pharaoh, and turns it upside down in his rescue plan and rescues Moses in this wonderful way. And when he's old enough, when he's weaned, uh, he's brought to Pharaoh's daughter, and he becomes her son. She names him Moses because, she 
she said, I drew him out of the water. That's what Moses means to draw out. Um, it's also uh, in Egyptian means son. And Moses is, is really a, a contrast to the other Moseses. We talked about this the other week. In Egypt, Totmos, Amos, and Ramoses, or Ramses. Here is the one drawn from the water that's God's deliverer, God's hero. Um, and certainly as the, as the original audience would have heard this and uh, this story told, they would have, been, would have seen the irony of it all in the drama. And they would be, I think, learning this key lesson about God who weaves His perfect story even amidst the ups and downs of our imperfect stories. And that's one of the lessons here. And, and it, of course, we can't help but pointing forward to Jesus because all of Scripture ultimately does point to Him or from Him. And there's parallels, aren't there, between Moses and Jesus. Moses was also born and in, in, uh, an infant amidst an edict of infanticide, an edict of death. And he too was called out of Egypt eventually to be God's deliverer. So Matthew 2 teaches us this. Matthew 2.13, Now when the, they, the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So ultimately, uh, this is how our God works. He works redemption out of tragedy, victory out of what seems to be a loss. In the case of Moses, in the case of Jesus, because we know the, the whole story with Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate deliverer who doesn't, merely lead people out of a country and out of slavery, as significant as that is, he leads us out of real slavery to sin and death through his death on the cross and his resurrection. He gives us forgiveness and new life. He's the ultimate deliverer who turns tragedy and loss into ultimate victory. His death on the cross is a loss, but he turns it to the resurrection and victory over sin and death. And so this is who our God is. This is how he acts. And most importantly, in Christ, and of course, importantly, in the life of the nation of Israel through Moses, but also in the ups and downs of our lives. God is bigger than our circumstances. There's nothing that He can't redeem. There's no thing in our lives that, from which He cannot rescue us and even turn to good. This is a lesson of this chapter and of Scripture, and I hope it helps us understand our lives this way. Don't let the ups and downs, the failures, the imperfections of your life define you. Remember, God weaves His story even through the imperfections and ups and downs of our lives. Well, the story continues here in verse 11. It says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. So now Moses has grown up. It's actually... He's 40, we learn elsewhere in Scripture from the book of Acts. He's 40 years old at this point. It says, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? 
He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. So the storyline takes a twist here, doesn't it? All this hope, all this promise, all, all this wonderful irony of the rescue of Moses, and it gets you to anticipate, well, what's going to happen? If God could do that with Moses, then of course, this is his deliverer, and he's going to use him to deliver Israel. And Moses has grown up now. He's 40. He's at the prime of his life. And so the expectation is now the deliverer is going to act and rescue God's people. Yet, that's not what we see. Now, don't get me wrong, there's faith going on in Moses' life. Again, in Hebrews 11, we can look and understand more. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater, of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So there's faith at work in him, but it's mixed up with some other stuff. It's mixed up with pride, perhaps, and just fleshliness. And this is not the act of God's deliverer. This is the act of a murderer going on here. Because he, he goes out, he sees the oppression going on, and certainly that's important, that's right, to note this and, and to hate it. But he looks this way, and he looks that way, and he murders the Egyptian and hides his body in the sand. And then he goes out the next day, Still thinking, I'm the deliverer perhaps. I'm going to do this thing. I'm the one called by God. And, and certainly he could have looked at his life and recognized that. His name mean, means drawn out of the water. He probably knew his story, at least from his adoptive mother, about being drawn out of the water. And he had been raised as a little boy, probably learned Hebrew from his own mother. And so he had enough to, to work on. And he was, he was doing something here, but he, he's... he's probably aware of his call, but he's mixing it with himself. He's taking his call into his own hands. And so he murders the Egyptian, and then he goes out the next day, and his own people essentially reject him. He tries to intervene. Why did you strike your companion? And the guy's answer is, who made you a prince and a judge over us? He could have said, actually, God did. Let me tell you my story. But, but the way it's given is like, who do you think you are? Pride is encountered with pride. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So with that, he realizes, well, the word's out. They know what I did. And, and so, of course, Pharaoh hears about it, and he, Moses has to flee. It's a sad turn of events in the story. And it's all because Moses, in his prime, ready to step into his destiny, Instead, takes things into his own hands and messes it up really badly. He murders a man. And he's chased out of Egypt. And he's rejected by the very people he's supposed to deliver. Have you ever had an experience like that? Where you've taken things into your own hands and made a mess? I think we all have stories like that. One story, somewhat trivial compared to other stories, but um, I remember our infamous Subaru that we bought years ago. Nothing wrong with Subaru products. I don't mean to say anything, but this one there was. We needed a new car, 
and uh, we had some extra money, and and I uh, did some research. They didn't have Craigslist back then, but they had want ads, and I found this wonderful Subaru. All the options in pristine condition. It was great, and we needed a car, and I had the money, and I visited the people, and I bought it on site. It looked good. It ran good. I don't think I took time to pray, to think about it, to wait. And we bought it, and I was excited until the engine wall collapsed in the Subaru, and all our money went down the tube. This wonderful car became just a high-option, good-looking piece of total junk. And it's one of my stories of taking things into my own hands and watching them not work. What is your story like that? Maybe it's something like a car. Maybe it's something more serious. Maybe you've taken your life in your own hands and decided to live your own way and to find things your own way and seek things in your own pleasures without reference to God. And you've made a mess of things. Well, this story is here for you. This story is here to remind you that even though you mess up, God is at work. And God is able to redeem and to rescue and to weave His story even through your failures. And it's also a reminder for us to, to real, realize that we need the Lord. We may think we have all the equipment we need. We may think we're competent. We might be in the prime of life. And think it's my destiny to step into this thing. But let us not presume on our destiny. God opposes the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. Boy, that makes all the difference. And that's a good lesson to remember. This story helps us to remember it and to live by it. To, to be ones who even though we think we have everything, let us go to the Lord and say, Lord, lead me. I need you. Without you, I'm nothing. I can't even make the wisest decision. Without you, give us wisdom. Help us. And he is glad to give grace. Well, let's continue to follow the story. The second part of verse 15. It says, Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father very well, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he, he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses messes up. He flees Egypt. He gives up on his deliverer uh, plans and his destiny as he saw them. Uh, and he flees to Midian. He ends up in this place. Midian would be in central and northern uh, Sinai Peninsula. The Midians are actually related to the Jews through Abraham. Abraham's later wife, Keturah, one of her sons, their sons, was Midian. So they're related, uh, distantly related as well. So he flees to this area. And, and in the storyline, of course, he meets Reuel, uh, who's a, a priest. Um, he is a believing priest. He, he's a believer in the God of Abraham. So he meets him, and we know him by the name uh, Jethro as well. And this is a, another rescue story here, actually. 
And as you read it, you might think, well, the rescue is Moses, right? He shows up, and, and then, by the way, it's another confrontation, and yet this, this time Moses acts rightly and rescues them from the, the other shepherds and so that they can take care of their flocks, and, and then he waters their flocks. It's a very humble thing, actually. This is a prince of Egypt watering people's flocks. And I think it, it's a clue to, to some of what's going on inside of Moses' heart. He's been brought very low, and he's by the well, by himself. He's in a desert. It's not necessarily a very safe thing, right? To be by yourself regardless, but to be in a desert-like area without a home. And so you may think Moses is the hero in certain way he is, but actually he gets rescued again by women. He's being rescued by the daughters of Jethro. He's been given a home in his time of retreat. He's being given a family and a place to dwell. That's what's going on here. God, again, is orchestrating rescue for Moses, and he's orchestrating a time for Moses to cool down and to chill out and to learn about humility and meekness and to lower his own opinion of himself. We'll see later on. He turns into quite a humble man. He's called the meekest man in the Old Testament. Meekness means to be humble, to realize I need the Lord, to wait for the Lord before acting. And so Moses is transformed by this time, and yet God is the one rescuing him here. God is the one who brings along these, these uh, women who are taking care of the sheep and brings along this godly man, and the, he's welcomed into the family by this man. And he marries one of the daughters and, and has a son. So there's a rescue going on here. There's God weaving his story even in Moses' failure and he's working in Moses' good. He's teaching Moses a valuable lesson about humility that he needs in order to lead God's people. He's going to be called. We're going to see it. He's going to be called to lead God's people, but he needs to be a humble man. A man who looks to the Lord and brings glory to God and points the people to God, not himself. And if he had stepped into his ministry... His call at 40, he would have been a disaster. He was a disaster. God works his plan, weaves his story through Moses' failures and his imperfections. And he works it out in amazing ways. And again, I hope we hear this lesson that God is able to do this. In the Alpha class, we've heard a story about a man named Lord Radstock. He was a famous missionary, by the way, a friend of George Mueller, the, the man of faith in England back in the 1800s. He was at a hotel in Norway uh, back then, and he heard a girl playing on the piano in the lobby, and it was awful. It was just hitting random keys, and it, it did not sound too good, and it, and it basically was distracting him and driving him a little crazy. And he got up to see what was going on, and then he noticed that a man came by and sat next to her. And as she's going plink, plunk, plink, plunk, plunk, this man started to play the piano. And he wove through the, through the terrible music that she was playing a wonderful symphony. And so the combination of his playing in the midst of her just plinking and plunking on the piano was a masterpiece and transformed what was going on in that piano. He later learned that uh, the girl uh, was there with her father. His fa father was Alexander Borodin, the, composer of multiple works, actually a genius, and, uh, including the, the famous opera Prince Igor. So this composer, this talented composer, was able to come along 
and weave a story amidst her imperfections and make something beautiful. That's what God does in our lives. He is able to work His perfect story even through our imperfections and even through our failures to turn them to good as we look to Him. So don't let your failures and your weaknesses define you. Let the God of redemption, the, the powerful one who is always good, and the good possibilities that He has, let them define you. Finally, the ending of the section. It says in verse 23, During those many days the king of Egypt died. Those many days, by the way, are 40 more years. So Moses is 80 at this point. Imagine he's starting his calling at 80. The king of Egypt dies. This pharaoh who had decreed Moses' death dies. Evil does come to an end. Evil people are not immortal. Though people thought Pharaoh was a god, he's not. He dies. And then the people of Israel do something they haven't done yet. They do something that they haven't done, at least at the level. They cry out to God. And it's really clear in the passage, uh, it says that the king of Egypt died, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. They groaned and they cried out for help. So this is the first time we see in the Scripture that they're actually crying out together for help. They've groaned before. They've seen the oppression. They've experienced it. And certainly God has been aware of it. And certainly there have been people who have prayed, but now the people together are crying out for help. They, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And then it says something really profound. It says, And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew four different things that God does as they cry out. And, and those four verbs are there so we understand the level of God's reply. They're crying out because they're in slavery. They're groaning because of their oppression. They cry out together. They are praying and they're seeking God together as His people. And God responds by hearing them groan. He hears their prayers. He remembers His covenant. It's not that He forgot it, but He's hearing them in light of this covenant, in light of His promises, in light of His character. He sees the people. He sees what's going on. He sees their circumstances. He, he sees their struggles. He knows what's in their hearts. And it says, and God knew. And it's not just like he, he was informed. He knew intimately what they were going through. And so these four verbs give us the, the sense of God's awareness and His response. And this is how the chapter ends. And so as we hear this here, we should understand that God's getting ready to act. There's something really big going to happen. <coughs> that's, that's why it's saying he's, he's hearing, He's remembering, He's seeing, He's knowing. He's, he's hearing their prayers and He's ready to act. He's ready to move. It sets us up for what's going to fall, but it also teaches us a lesson about prayer, doesn't it? We can actually pray to God individually. We can bring our needs to the Lord. That's a good thing. That's a legitimate thing. God hears us in that. But He wants us to come together. And there's something that goes on when His people come together and say, Lord, hear us. Help us. Lead us. Lord, we're facing difficulties in our lives. Lord, we have a community around us who so needs You. Please act. 
there's an importance to corporate prayer, and I'm looking forward to, by the way, resuming our regular monthly corporate prayer after uh, February, because we're doing classes now. When we come back, we're going to have corporate prayer. I just want to encourage you. I don't want you to do it out of guilt, but I want you to do it out of the Word and hearing God's call through the Word. Join us if you can, if at all possible. Be there when we pray. Because I believe when we come together to pray like this, God hears uh, in, a, in a profound way. And sometimes He withholds His answers until the people of God come together in united prayer. That's what we see here. But God does hear. He does hear these prayers and He does act. And, and we've been seeing Him actually act recently in many wonderful ways. For years, people have prayed for, for the Muslim peoples of the world that somehow God would work and, and bring in uh, people to the kingdom that they'd understand and be freed from, from falsehood to truth. And we are seeing, by the way, nowadays, really millions of Muslims come to Christ. Whole villages are, are believing in Christ. Uh, many, many people are having dreams, actually. Uh, it's very common to hear the testimonies where someone, including imams, including leaders, religious leaders, having dreams during the night where God appears to them or Christ will appear to them and say, uh, I am the truth. I want you to go and see so-and-so so who's a Christian, and they're going to explain the gospel to you. These sorts of dreams are happening, and in that culture, dreams are, are received as revelation. So God's using this, and there's just story after story. Right now, in the country of Iran, amazing things are happening. Behind the scenes and the, the politics that we see on the surface, there are, are thousands and thousands coming to Christ. Uh, one ministry... Uh, uh, in one year's time period, had 60,000 people uh, receive Christ through their ministry, just one ministry in Iran. Uh, there's amazing things going on. There's persecution going on as well. There are, more people, there are more people who have come to faith in Iran in the past 20 years than all 1,300 years previously. And we live in a day where God's answering dramatically, but you know what? There's been centuries of prayer fasting and prayer from God's people, asking God to work. And we're getting to see that. I see the same in many ways in New England. Um, I can remember praying with churches in, in the city of Boston 30 years ago or so for God to work in Boston. And now there are churches being planted throughout all the neighborhoods of Boston. Probably within a time period from 2000 to maybe, it probably will take another five years, there may be as many as 1,000 new and, and, and revitalized churches in New England. God's been answering our prayers for New England. This is who our God is. And, and so I, I want us to hear this, and I want us to have faith to ask, and especially to join together to pray, and to pray for our families and neighbors, to pray for Haverhill and, and all of New England, that God would touch lives, give people eyes to see their need for God, and, and more importantly, to see that God is everything they need and more. Well, I hope this helps you understand this passage. I hope you are encouraged by this main truth that God weaves his perfect story into our imperfect story. And I hope it encourages you to trust him and to give everything to him and to pray and ask and believe that he'll act. In closing, let me read the whole chapter so we can hear it all together. And I trust be impacted by God's word. So listen to God's word. Exodus chapter 1, chapter 2, starting the last verse in chapter 1. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. 
but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why did you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father well, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God's word from Exodus chapter 2. Let's just take a minute to maybe prayerfully consider a, a way to apply God's word from this passage today, and uh, as the band could come up, uh, we'll transition then to communion. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful story and how you worked then, but also, Lord, ultimately how you worked in the life of Christ to work redemption, and Lord, how you work in our own lives. You're the God who 
weaves your perfect story, even through our imperfect story, as we trust you. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for doing that. And I pray, Lord God, you would build faith in us to trust you in these ways. And I pray you'd use each of our stories to tell the story of your grace and your goodness. We pray this in Christ's name.